Our epistle lesson for the morning is found in Ephesians 6. We are reading verses 10 through 24 as we complete Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers." And love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for your help this morning as we come to this final portion of the book of Ephesians. We thank you for meeting us over these weeks, illumining our minds and our hearts, giving us understanding of all that you have spoken. And Lord, we ask today that you would do the same. Speak, for your servants are here to listen. Amen. Many people do struggle to hold together the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters are a soaring encounter with the grace of God. Everything that God has done from eternity past into the present through the death and resurrection of Jesus to affect his salvation in the world, to unite all things in heaven and on earth. And chapters 1, chapters 2, and chapters 3 speak of that reconciliation that takes place between God and men, between fellow men, and how we can then be liberated from the powers of sin. It is beautiful. And then we arrive in chapter 4, and Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so for three more simultaneous chapters, we then have instructions about what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which with, with which we have been called. And we hear command after command commands from God in which he places a complete and total claim upon our lives. 
We are not to gossip. We are not to live in malice and anger. We are not to live in drunkenness. We are to know how to live together as husbands and wives. And there's even instructions at the very end for those who find themselves in the unjust situation of slavery about how to endure as a Christian. It is a complete and total commandment that runs from chapter 4 through chapter 6. And many people struggle to hold it all together. What does the grace of God in chapters 1 through 3 have to do with all the commands of God in chapters 4 through 6? And we can hear chapters 4 through 6, and we can leave heavy. We can feel guilty and feel like we're complete failures. How can we answer the claim that God puts on our lives? And this is where the closure to Paul's letter is so important. That in Ephesians 6, 10 through 24, Paul answers that question. How do we answer God's claim upon us? And the answer is simple. That we can only answer God's claim by depending upon God's strength. It takes divine strength for us to answer the divine claim. And this is where he starts in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It wasn't until studying Greek that I actually understood English. And so I was 24 years old, and I'm not sure I really knew what the passive voice was. And so don't be ashamed if you don't know today. But Paul here, when he says, be strong in the Lord, he does use the passive voice. Some people would read this instruction and say, yes, we're to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and to be strong in the Lord in our own personal resources. That would be the active voice. The passive voice is not where the subject does the acting, but rather the subject is acted on. That God is the one who strengthens us. We are to be made strong in the Lord is the essence of what it means. That God must divinely empower us in the strength of his might. And that is the only way that we can answer God's claim upon us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. It is in God's strength that we find strength. This is how Paul closes his entire letter. And it's the simplest thing, perhaps, to say about the Christian life. But yet anyone who's endeavored to pursue it knows that it's one of the most difficult to actualize. About seven years ago, as I was closing my time in Memphis, I had two young guys who had just entered into my ministry, and during the same week, they both lit themselves on fire. Their life was completely exploding. They were both sons of two prominent families in town, and they had very publicly ashamed and exposed their families through their sins. They came to the pastor for help. They both came asking the right questions. But after a few weeks, it was apparent that one man's life was going to be forever changed and one man's life was going to remain largely the same. They both had shame and guilt about what had been done, but they were processing their experiences in two very different ways. Both had been on the outer periphery of the church. One began to move in, confessing his sins, One stayed on the periphery, too ashamed of what he had done. Everyone knew it was too much for him. 
One began to trust the promises of the gospel, and one was making excuses for himself. One began to pray and to seek to understand the Bible, and one was content with the knowledge he had. And friends, this is what it means to trust in God's strength and what it means not to trust in God's strength. When we confide in our own resources and we, remain in our, we will remain in our own vices. But when we look outside of ourselves and we confess a complete inability to answer God's claim upon our lives, this is when progress begins to be made. And it oftentimes does require complete brokenness on our behalf. And so the major question for us to answer this morning is how do we tap into that divine strength? How does that strength channel from Christ to us? How does this work itself out? And there's three things that we see the Apostle Paul develop in Ephesians 6. And the first is that we tap into this strength by understanding our opponent. Follow me in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. Paul instructs us to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now for many people, when they hear this kind of cosmic language about evil, and the role of the devil and demons, cosmic powers, they simply start to shut down. How do we in the modern age believe anything so unsophisticated? It has been the task of modern science to open to us a world in the cosmos that we don't fully understand. We used to believe there were simply three dimensions in the world, but now we've discovered there were 16. And then there was a discovery a few years ago that blew that out, and it made it apparent to everyone that we do not understand with our finite human minds the complexity of creation. And what the Bible presents to us is a complex world, a world where heaven and earth overlap and intersect in various ways in which there also is a veil between them, but that we live in a creation that's shot full of the glory of God in a multidimensionality, and that there are evil powers at work in it. C.S. Lewis, writing at the close of the Second World War in post-war England, ran into this secularism, a flatlander view of the world that could only believe in material things. Listen to what he says. This is in the preface to the Screwtape Letters. And if you need entertaining summer reading... This is the book for you. Screwtape Letters is a, a wonderful diary of a junior demon writing to a senior demon about how to tempt Christians. It's en enormously entertaining. But in the preface, Lewis writes this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil and demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And so we attempt to walk the path of not being a materialist, just believing in what we can see, believing in what we can rationally understand, and also not being magicians, not believing that the world is somehow supernaturally charged where there's a rabbit inside of every hat and the devil is out to get us and destroy us behind every bush. But we do affirm and we recognize that there are evil forces at work. 
That the devil's work is to scheme to destroy God's purposes in the world. He seeks to subvert what God is doing to reconcile heaven and earth. What God is doing to reconcile human beings to one another. What God is doing to liberate you from sin. And so his major goal is to distract you from that. Sometimes that work is overt, and sometimes that work is more subtle. When it's more subtle, it's perhaps at its best. One commentator, Claude, Clyde Snodgrass, writes this. He says, evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goal. It gains entrance by appearing attractive, desirable, and perfectly legitimate. It is a baited and camouflage trap. And the thing that we have to understand about ourselves is that left to our own resources, we are weak, and we are prone to walk into those baited and camouflaged traps. And it's important for us to ask the questions of ourselves. Where have we taken the bait recently? What have we believed? What are the schemes of the devil that can be at work in our own lives, in our own communities, in our own country, in our world? And are we taking a personal inventory? Are we interrogating ourselves and asking ourselves those questions? Because in the Christian life, we can't rely upon past accomplishments from months and years ago. But our obedience is in the present moment where we render and offer ourselves to God. Are you allowing God to search your heart and your mind? Not did you confess your sins once long ago, but do you live in the posture of confession, of acknowledgement, of being aware of where you are weak? If we're not, then we will not experience the ongoing strengthening that Ephesians 6 speaks of. We simply won't know it. Because strength begins in the awareness of weakness and in understanding our opponent as to how he works. And that's the first part of experiencing divine empowerment. The second is that we tap into this divine empowerment through the divine warrior. We find this is in verses 13 through 17. Verse 11, Paul mentions that we are to put on the whole armor of God. And then in verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. He then gives us the command to stand firm, and he goes on to enumerate the armor of God. The armor that he mentions were the pieces of a Roman army uh, army officer, what they would wear into battle. He doesn't give us the complete list of everything that is worn, but it is an impressive list. And there have been many sermons preached over the years in which they have focused upon those specific pieces of armor and what those mean. That can be helpful, but it also misses the forest for the trees. Because this divine armor that is mentioned to us here is directly lifted by Paul out of the book of Isaiah. If you were to look in chapter 11, verses 4 and 5, there is armor mentioned there, worn by one person. And then you find it again in chapter 52, verse 7. And then you find it again in chapter 59, verses 15 through 17. 
And if you'll turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 59, it's helpful. Because this armor is the armor that God himself puts on. 59 verse 15. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. God looked upon the world and saw there was no justice, that it was just unrighteousness and sin. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And so what was God's answer? Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And friends, this is the divine warrior that God sends into the world to make the world right, to deal with human sin and injustice. And so when we read of putting on the armor of God, we are being asked to clothe ourselves in Christ, the divine warrior. He's the one who has won the victory. You remember in chapter 1 that he went down into death, and then in the resurrection he destroyed the power of death, and then he was seated at the right hand of God in verses 20 and 21. And now he can free us from the evil prince of the power of the air. He springs us from that trap. It is in Jesus' victory that we can be clothed in his armor and experience victory. He's the general of the army, and what is true of him becomes true of us by faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is pleading with us to find our victory in Christ, to clothe ourselves in his battle armaments, because he has won, and there's no doubt about it. And as we look to him, we too will be victorious. To think of this battle is rather ironic it's a wonderful picture of it in the Old Testament. 2 Kings 19. King Hezekiah was on the throne. He was mostly a good king in Israel. But the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, in 701, came and laid siege to Jerusalem. Sennacherib was striking back at the king of Babylon, and he comes with a massive army, surrounds Jerusalem, and begins to taunt the city. He offered them terms of peace, that if they surrendered, he would spare them. They denied those terms of peace. And so Sennacherib then said, do you trust in your God? Don't you see all the great cities and nations that I've leveled? Syria was the superpower of its day. Do you think your God will stop me from destroying these city walls? Hezekiah was humbled. And we are told in 2 Kings 19 that then he prayed. He prayed and asked for God's help. Sometime during the night, something happened. There was an intervention. The mighty men of Sennacherib died. The armies fleed. There was a decisive victory for Israel, and they had done nothing. The next morning, they walk out into the enemy camps, and there was God's victory on display. The spoils of war were theirs. Sennacherib escaped only to be murdered in his own temple back home. And friends, this is what divine victory looks like for you. You walk into the train and the trail of what God has done for you. You put on the armor of God and you clothe yourselves in it because it's the armor of the great king who fights for you and who has won you. 
that he has won the holy war and ask you to step into the final stages of it prior to his springing of redemption into all creation. The third piece to this divine strength, the way that we tap into it. So we tap into this divine strength through prayer. Back in Ephesians chapter 6, after closing out his expansion of the divine armor, Paul shifts tenses and draws attention to verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And this is the last thing that Paul draws attention to for divine strengthening, prayer. It is sometimes the forgotten means of grace. In the Reformed Church, we talk about the Word of God being a means of grace. We talk about the sacraments being a means of grace. And we talk about prayer being a means of grace. And it is out of verses like this that that theology was developed. Because it is in the activity of prayer that we appropriate the divine armor that God gives us through His Son, Jesus. Prayer is the expression of our faith. It is how these gifts are actualized and brought to bear upon us. Because, friends, our struggle is not with the sufficiency of the armor that God provides. We can't blame God about not resourcing us. Our struggle is a failure to use what he has already given us in Christ. That we don't take hold of the breastplate. We don't take hold of the helmet. We don't cover ourselves in all that he gives us in Christ. We rather hold off and confide in our own strength rather than to express our weakness and call out to him in need. Faith appropriates the armor in prayer, calling out to God from weakness for help. This is what Paul is calling us to do here. Several years ago, after a decade of ministry, Melissa and I had the opportunity to take an extended vacation. It was the first time that I had been away from preaching for quite some time, more than two weeks in a row. As I was preparing to leave town, I was very tired, and I found myself very discouraged. I felt like my sanctification was stalled, and after a decade of ministering to people, I had some thorns and thistles growing up in my heart. Wasn't particularly proud of it, didn't exactly want to talk about it, but I knew that I needed to work on it. So I picked up a few books from around my office. One of the ones that I picked up was St. Augustine's Confessions. I threw it in my bag. I had read it twice for class assignments, but I'd never really read it. But while I was away, I took it upon myself not to read too many books, and I decided that I was just going to focus on the confessions, that I needed to just study one thing slowly and thoroughly, and perhaps that would be more helpful than all of my theological learning it hadn't done me much good that, up to that point. And so I found myself deeply struggling, but in reading Augustine's Confessions, and particularly the first 100 pages, you may find it tremendously encouraging to take it in very slowly. I came across this line. 
It is a line that Calvin quotes over and over as well. Augustine says, O God, command what you will and give what you command. The first thing I want you to note is that it is a prayer. The entire Confessions is actually written as a prayer. And he was asking God, you have made these great commands. You have this total claim upon my life. And I find myself weak and unable to answer that claim, to walk in a manner worthy of my calling. Yes, you've forgiven me of my sins, but how am I to live this Christian life? And he knew that the only answer was that God had to give it. That he had to be made strong in the Lord. That God had to empower him through his spirit. And Augustine appropriated that in an expression of faith through prayer. And friends, that has to be the tenor of the Christian life. This has to be where we turn, not simply to talk about weakness and boast about it, but to turn our weakness into prayer and ask for God's help. That this was Augustine's great discovery, and it can be ours as well. This is where spiritual life happens. It is in the midst of that crisis and tension and feeling weakness. And weakness often drives us into despair where we don't know how to start. But that is precisely where God wants you, to confess that weakness and to ask him for the help. To let him command whatever, but to give what he has commanded. And in the book of Ephesians, we have seen an impressive list of vices. We've seen an even more impressive list of virtues. We've seen that greed and covetousness are major struggles. And you may find yourself in that place. And how do you overcome the greed and covetousness that lives in the human heart? How do you even begin to make progress against it? God, command what you will, but give what you command. Give me contentment. Give me thankfulness, was Paul's answer in Ephesians 5. We've seen the danger and destruction of anger at the end of chapter 4. Malice and slander and all the things that rise from it. How do we begin to push back against anger that can rise up from in us? It is only through God's help. How do we solve gossip, sexual problems, and perhaps what Paul finds is the capstone of all Christian virtues, a lack of love, a lack of concern for others, where we don't give ourselves to others in the same way God has given himself to us in Christ. That list alone can paralyze you. It paralyzes me. And it paralyzes us when we don't remember that God gives that God strengthens us, that God can make us strong. And in making us strong, we don't somehow earn our way into heaven. Jesus has won the victory for us. We're forgiven by God and set free. We are talking about that life of freedom where we walk in the glorious freedom of life, the way that God created us to be. If you remember at the close of chapter 2, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And friends, to walk in those good works requires this divine empowerment. And I dare you to call upon him. 
in the midst of your weakness, try him. See if his armor is sufficient for you. See if it will deliver. See if Jesus can make good in your weakness. Because, friends, he is the divine warrior, and he doesn't lack. He'll provide you everything you need. Let's pray. Father, in the midst of our weaknesses, we ask that you would help us. Your commands are great, and they are lofty. They can cause discouragement in our hearts, but yet the victory of your Son is secure, and he offers us his armor, that we would be clothed in him, And so from our weakness, may we learn to cry out to you for help. Command what you will, God, but please give what you command. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.